getting into the days of creation in our study of Genesis this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, we'll be in Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of the Bibles in front of you. Um, we've been kind of running up to this for a number of weeks. Um, before we get started, we are still doing our Q&R at the end of each uh, message. So if you have questions at any point during uh, the sermon today, you can text them anonymously to that number, and uh, we'll work through some of them as we can at the end. Um, we're going to spend about six weeks in what's called the creation narrative, the rest of Genesis chapter 1. Uh, and I want to give you a couple things, some, some overarching things to kind of hold on to as we go. The first thing is God is going to speak 10 times in chapter 1. He speaks, uh, and it, it's like a king making a decree. He's not, he's not working, he's not struggling, he's not fighting, he's just speaking, and things happen. Creation responds. Today, we're going to take a look at three different realms. We're going to take a look at the heavens, we're going to take a look at the seas, we're going to take a look at the land. Next week, we're going to take a look at things that God places in those realms, so the first three days are different areas. The second three days are inhabitants for those areas. Throughout this section, he's going to call the creation good. When he sets up his creation, everything is doing what it is supposed to be doing. Remember, we've been talking about functional creation. The ancient people in the Near East believed that function was important to existence. And so when God says things are good, he says things are working according to plan. Everything has a correct purpose and function. This makes it, critiquing creation kind of makes it like you're critiquing an artist then. Like, you know, if you see a beautiful painting and you go like, oh man, I would have used green instead of blue. Like, well, that's pretty subjective. So when we see the creation coming together, it's doing what God made it to do. We're going to see continually separation, water from water, water from land, And God is excited about this idea of diversity. Everything was this like united, functionless mass of water, right? We, we talked about that last week. The earth was formless and empty. Everything was the same. And God's constantly separating it and making it different. And he's separating this stuff from this stuff but everything is working together as part of his created order. And the other thing we're going to see throughout this section is God naming things. We, we name things because we just like them. Like if you have a baby, you probably just, you got a baby book from the library that has like 15,000 names in it and you just picked one that you liked. I know some of you are cooler than that and you have like this amazing story behind the names of your children. But a lot of people just pick names because they like them. And that's fine. But in the ancient Near East, name giving was this sacred thing. You named something and that gave you this connection to it. It gave you this authority over it. And so God is constantly bringing these things into existence and giving them names, giving them purpose, giving them function. So start with day one, verse three. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, 
And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was an evening, and there was a morning one day. So right off the bat, we're getting into controversy, something that Bible scholars fight about in in every line of this book. But what is a day? If you've grown up in Christian circles, you've, you've probably heard of all of the infighting about how creation works. Was it seven days that were 24 hours long? Is each day supposed to represent thousands of years? Was it one day followed by a huge break, followed by another day, followed by a huge break? And so people argue about what is a day? The Hebrew word is yom. And, and words in general, not just in Hebrew, but in language in general, they have what's called a semantic range. That means they can mean different things. This word day can mean the daylight hours, the time that the sun shines. It can mean a 24-hour day. It can mean like special days, like the day of his death. Um, If you make it plural, it can mean a few days or even as much as a year. It can be the day as today. Today is the day. Or it can mean in that day or, or like saying when this happens. And we find all of these in the Bible. But this is the problem we get into as Bible students. And if any of you have um, gotten a Bible dictionary and you've looked up a word and you see that it has five or six meanings and you just kind of pick the one you like. Have you ever done that? You know what? It's translated this in the Bible, but this word sounds better. I like that better. I've done that. But that's not how language works, is it? It's not how we use words. If I am taking my wife to dinner and we have a reservation at the restaurant and I say, hey, it's time to go. And she says, I'll be ready in a minute. It is not helpful for me to start a stopwatch for 60 seconds because that's not what she means. She means in an indefinite but small period of time, I will be ready to go. But then when we get to the restaurant and we're having a great time and the waitress comes over and says, hey, we're closing in 10 minutes, I cannot go, she must mean 10 indefinite periods of time. No, she means in 10 periods of 60 seconds, we're kicking you out of this restaurant. Same word, two different meanings. And we have to figure out the context of the language being spoken to learn the meaning of the word. And almost overwhelmingly, scholars of ancient Hebrew have decided these verses tell us that the word yom means just a regular 24-hour day, just just a day, just a normal day. And we see that in two ways in the text. In verse 4, We read, God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. And I've heard like quantum physicists talk about how you separate light from darkness and that's this weird thing that I don't understand. But Moses Moses doesn't understand that. John Walton writes, the physicist's light cannot be separated from darkness, but alternating periods of light and darkness can be set up. God separates the light from the darkness in chapter one of Genesis by putting the darkness over here and putting the light over here in a constant rotation once a day. And then in verse five, 
God spells it out for us. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and there was a morning, one day. He doesn't call the light photons. He doesn't call the light electromagnetic radiation. He calls the light day. When the light's out, it's daytime. When the light's not here, it's nighttime. The word day is a regular 24-hour day. And I honestly, I love the idea of thinking about God saying, let there be light and the universe like exploding into existence at the Big Bang and photons and electromagnetism and all this stuff. But that's not what this is saying. That's not in Moses' mind. Genesis is not trying to teach us that God created the electromagnetic spectrum. Genesis is trying to teach us that God created time. God brought order where there was disorder. Not Einstein or, or Stephen Hawking's conception of time, but just the everyday reality that our lives are ordered by a series of moments. The sun comes up, the sun goes down. The sun comes up, the sun comes down. And, and this seems so simple, but think of all of the ways that you interact with time as an ordering of your life on a daily basis. I wake up to an alarm. My electric toothbrush buzzes for exactly two minutes. I time with my phone, my pores as I make my coffee. My calendar tells me to be certain places at certain times. I meet with people to talk about seasonal rhythms. Me and John have to have a meeting soon because our calendar says in, on July 1st, we have to start planning for Christmas. That's crazy. But time is a fundamental reality of a functioning creation. It's just the backdrop of how we exist. And it's the very first thing that God creates. Let me move on to day two. Verse six, then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. And so God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning, the second day. So on day two, God makes the sky. There's this water and he separates it. There's, there's water above and water below. We could think of this as God makes and controls the weather. If you remember from a few weeks ago, this is a departure from Babylonian theology. If you were in the ancient, Middle, or the ancient Near East at this time, Babylon would have been a rising power. Babylonians believed that Marduk, their king, came and destroyed the great beast Tiamat and separated her body in half in a great battle. And Moses is just poking a little fun at the Babylonians. God doesn't need to fight. God is perfect. God is good. God has all of this under control. There's no war going on here. The weather is another foundational functional reality in our world. We do certain things when it's sunny. We do other things when it rains. In Idaho, we buy lawnmowers and snowblowers. I hear a lot of talk of all of our, our friends that have moved in from out of state and like, well, wait till winter comes. Maybe. The weather changes the way we believe about things. The weather determines the clothes we wear, the cars we buy. It can be a huge blessing when we go out in the sun to the beach. It can be a major problem for us when there's disasters. 
Time is a fundamental reality. The weather is a fundamental reality. But we need to take a break here and talk about this idea of the expanse. This is another problem passage. So if you have an older Bible, you might have the word firmament there. And as you read through the Old Testament, you get the impression that the authors of the Bible believe that the sky is a solid dome holding back an ocean above it. Job 37, 18 says, can you help God spread out the skies as hard as a cast metal mirror? Psalm 148, 4 says, praise him highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Next week, we're going to see God place stars in the expanse and have birds fly in front of the expanse. And so that, that's, a, that's a problem. What are we supposed to do with that for, for a society that's that flies in airplanes, but not just airplanes, has actually been to space, has been through the sky. We, we know that there's no hard dome holding back an ocean above that. I grew up learning that this expanse is a thick water vapor canopy that surrounds the earth, and all this water rained down on the world during the flood. Answers in Genesis, which is a um, prominent creation science ministry, they actually took this view down from their website in 2009 and stopped teaching it because they made a bunch of computer models and they figured it would have killed everyone if there was this giant water vapor around the world. It also doesn't make sense scripturally because in Psalm 148, which I read, the psalmist says to praise and calls on the waters above the heavens to praise, which that Psalm 148 is written after the flood. I read some recent young earth creationist scholarship that argued that there is a giant ball of water, but it is at the very edge of the universe, past all of the stars and everything that we know to exist. And that's a possible way to read this. Um, There's no way for us to prove that because we can't see that far. I think a simpler explanation for this problem is that ancient people really thought the sky was a dome holding back water. And the thing is, I don't really blame them for that. Like if you go outside today and look up in the sky, it is the color of water. Water falls down from it occasionally. And so if you have no advanced meteorology, it kind of makes sense that there's a bunch of water up there. So this causes all kinds of problems. We believe that the Bible is God's word, that it's inspired, that that God put his stamp of approval and truth on it. So what does this mean? Is the Bible teaching a lie? Some skeptics of scripture would call this a false cosmology. How could God possibly promote something that is wrong? Here's another question. How do we know that what we believe about the sky is right? Maybe maybe what we believe is more true than the solid dome But we tend to suffer as modern people from an arrogance that our people, our time, we have it all figured out. Those ancient people, they were dumb, but we're the smart ones. C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. He says it's the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate of our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that count discredited. And we tend to see the ancient world that way. But ancient people were not stupid we still do not know how they built the pyramids. 
and dozens of other amazing things that we find in archaeology. And we just scratch our heads going, like, I, I don't even know how we would do this today, let alone 3,000 years ago. And to kind of help us work through this conundrum that, that we seem to have with God with this expanse, I, I want to point you to a, an illustration from a video. There's a YouTube website run by Wired Magazine. And what they do is they get experts in a field and they challenge them to explain something at five different levels of difficulty. So I pulled up a video this week of Dr. Bobby Casturi, who's a neuroscientist, and he's talking about what's called the connectome, which is an advanced computer map of the human brain that they're working on. And he gets several people in order to explain this to. And the first one he he gets is a five-year-old boy. And he tells the five-year-old boy, we'd like to know where every cell in your brain is and how it talks to every other cell in your brain. And the five-year-old boy goes, all right, cool. But then a college student comes in and he says this, he says, in a human brain, it's a map of the literally four quadrillion connections and a hundred billion neurons that make, that make, that a hundred billion neurons make with each other. There's some bigger words there. There's a number. I don't, I don't know if anybody really knows what a quadrillion is. But the college student was tracking with that. Okay. But then at the end of the video, he gets to a fellow neuroscientist. And you hear this. If you limit the connectome to just the wiring diagram without more information about myelination or glial cells or all types of environmental features that surround the neurons and axons, then you have an incomplete picture. And at that point, I have no idea what they are talking about. Because, see, communication only takes place when the one receiving it understands it. If God, through Moses, giving the Israelites a picture of the world that they could understand, if that means that he's lying, then Dr. Kasturi was lying when he told the five-year-old boy that brain cells talk to each other. Because brain cells do not talk. They don't speak. That's a metaphor but it was a way that he could come down to the level of the five-year-old and teach him something that he could understand. And so the ancient world looked up at the sky and with their scientific understanding said, it's blue, water comes down from it, this is probably what it's like. It's possible that God could have explained the mysteries of the universe to them, but I'm not sure that they would have understood it. Maybe ancient Israel has an understanding of science like a five-year-old. And maybe we're operating at a college level 3,000 years later. But I guarantee you that if God unloaded all the secrets of how the universe really works, no one on this planet would have any idea what he's talking about. And this is what God basically says in the book of Job. I don't have it up on the screen, but I'm going to read a little bit from Job 38. Job spends... Job and his friends spend 37 chapters arguing back and forth about whether God is good or not. And then God shows up in chapter 38. It says, then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. He said, who is this that obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man when I question you. You will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me, 
if you have understanding? Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? Who supports its foundations or laid its cornerstones while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And he keeps going down in verse 16. He says, have you traveled to the sources of the sea or walked in the depths of the oceans? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the extent of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. In verse 31, can you fasten the chains of the Pleiades or loosen the belt of Orion? Can you bring out the constellations in their seasons and lead the bear and her cubs? Do you know the laws of heaven? Can you impose its authority on earth? Can you command the clouds so that a flood of water covers you? Do you can you send out lightning bolts and they go? Do, do they report to you? Here we are. And it's this, and it goes on and on and on, and it is God mocking Job for thinking he has any idea how the world works. And I feel like we could take some counsel from that reality that is advanced as we are as a people in 2021. There's so much we don't understand about how the world works. And if God was going to write Genesis today, he would write it in a way that we would understand. And future generations would go, can you believe the things that they believed in 2021? And I know that's, that's not a satisfactory answer for everyone in here. Um, one of those things that I think there's, well, I know there's a lot of disagreement on. I don't think it's worthwhile to divide over. But that's kind of where I've come to be with this passage. There's a couple of places online you can look for more information. Answers in Genesis has an article on this. They're, they would hold that the earth is about 6,000 years old and they would hold to a young earth creation as a model. Reasons to Believe is another apologetics website that, that talks about this issue. Um, they believe in an old earth, but they don't subscribe to biological evolution. Biologos is another Christian organization that holds to uh, modern evolution and, and talks about these issues as well. And they, they all come down in a different place and they're all people that love Jesus. But the message of this text is that God, as an example of his power and his goodness, is holding back chaos for the benefit of life. The chaotic waters have been separated so that life can happen. And no matter how we understand meteorology, the truth that God is in control and that he is good, that should be comforting to us. So we move on to day three. Then God said, verse nine, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit with seed in, their, in it according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Evening came and then morning, the third day. So on day three, God creates the land and the plants. And what we're supposed to walk away from is that God controls time, God controls the weather, and God controls agriculture. 
This is a big departure away from Egyptian cosmology. If you were an Egyptian and you read the book of Genesis, you would have thought, wow, that's really different. Because in Egypt, they recognize that their land is the source of their plenty, their goodness, the, the Nile River Delta. And in their cosmology, the cosmic waters are separated by the land, but the land is their God. Their God, Atum, comes out of the water and he is worshiped. And Moses says in Genesis, no, no, the land isn't a God. The land doesn't deserve your worship. The land is a gift to be celebrated as we worship the creator. And all these things, time, the weather, agriculture, they are foundational functions of human existence. In fact, in Genesis 8, after the flood, God makes this promise in 8.22. He says, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will not cease. Promises never to flood the world again, and he promises that these foundational realities will be consistent. And so then for us in, in 2021, we, we usually barely notice how foundational these things are. Right? Most of us in this room don't ever think about the crops failing or droughts or floods. I'm told there's a drought happening in the West this year, so we may have to start thinking about droughts. But generally, we, it doesn't come to mind, where is my food going to come from tomorrow? I don't have that thought. It's usually at least 40 years or so before someone starts thinking, my time on this planet is running out, isn't it? Nobody thinks that when they're young. We have all this time in the world. We're so privileged and so blessed that these hard-fought realities that were so foundational to people many years ago, we, we hardly think of them. So how should we relate to these things, these things that God made good? How do you relate to time? You and I have more free time than any people in the history of the world. What do you do with it? Do you follow in God's footsteps and bring order to it, bring beauty to it, bring goodness to it, or do you just let it fly by in chaos? The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, pay careful attention then to how you walk not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless living, but be filled by the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music with your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. See, God gives us all the same amount of time. We all have the same day and the same night. And I find myself constantly answering the question, maybe you do too, how are you doing? I'm so busy. Do you say that? Do you just like reflexively say that to people? I'm just so busy. Why are you so busy? Are you, are you redeeming the time? Are you taking the time that you've been given and looking at it and going, how does God want me to use this for his glory and the good of others? Or do you just let the hours go by and dictate to you how 
you're going to live. Paul says a couple things in this passage. He says, some of you need to stop drinking so much because it is ruining your life. And you need to sing more. You need to sing to one another psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Isn't that interesting? Paul says, you know, there's, there's a limited amount of time, so you better make sure that you guys sing together. Giving thanks to God and submitting to one another. God calls us to be wise with our time. But what about the weather? What about agriculture? How do we connect with these things? I'm expanding this a little bit, but think about just, think about power and technology and material wealth. All of these things kind of spring from the weather and, and agriculture and civilization. Think about all the electricity you use, the tools you have, the toys you have, the riches you have as seen by your refrigerator filled with food, or maybe your multiple refrigerators filled with food. The fact that we have streamlined the production of goods so well that it takes years for children to recognize that the hamburger and the animal in the field are the same thing. You guys with kids, you ever have this conversation with them? Like, what? What? What is this? This is how far removed we are from the natural space. And I don't, I don't know that that's a bad thing. Maybe, maybe it is. But the Egyptians worshipped the land as their God because it brought them plenty. It brought them wealth and prosperity and comfort And they said, this thing that brings us so much must be our God. But Genesis tells us, no, the land is a gift. The material wealth is a gift. The things that you have, they're gifts. They're not meant to be worshipped, but instead to be enjoyed as part of our worship back to the giver of that gift. I want to read you a passage in Isaiah 44. This is God speaking again. A lot of a lot of snarky God this morning in, in this sermon, but this is um, God talking about idols. He cuts down cedars for his use, and he takes a, snipe, a cypress or an oak, and he lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a laurel, and, ma- and the rain makes it grow. A person can use it for fuel. He takes some of it and warms himself. He also kindles a fire and bakes bread. And even makes it into a god and worships it. He makes an idol from it and bows down to it. He burns half of it in a fire and he roasts meat on that half. He eats the roast and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, ah, I am warm. I see the blaze. He makes a god or his idol with the rest of it. He bows down to it and worships it. He prays to it. Save me for you are my god. You, know, you probably don't think of God being sarcastic very often, but like that's, that's super sarcastic of him. Just be like, look at, this, look at this tree that you've got here. You cut it in half, you made dinner with half of it, and you're going to worship the other half of it. How foolish. And maybe we can say, well, we don't really bow down in front of our wealth, but how often do we prioritize the gifts of God over God himself? I find myself finding my identity, my satisfaction, my worth in the things that I own, the things that I accomplish, 
And this should not be the case. As we close, I want to share a a quote from John Piper. I've shared this before, but it's super powerful. He says, the critical question of our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? That's a hard question. Do we look forward to a time, to a place where all the problems of our world have been solved, all of our needs have been met, all of the pleasure and joy and relational harmony that we could possibly wish for has happened? And we'll take that even if Jesus isn't there. See, if we're we're really followers of Jesus, if we say, I am a Christian, The thing that we should be focused on, the thing that we should be in love with is Christ himself. As we draw near to Christ, we recognize all of these things that we have are gifts, but they can never take the place of Jesus himself. And if those gifts come and they go, it should be okay because we still have Jesus. Jesus says he'll never leave us or forsake us. And as we read through this creation account where God is building a world that is good, that is filled with all kinds of things that are specifically made, we'll find out in a few weeks, for people. We are the the masterpiece of his creation and all of creation is ordered around a place for us to live. We need to be aware that we are not walking away more in love with the gifts, more in love with the creation than we are with the creator. Because it's because of his love for us that we have all of these good gifts. And the absence of these gifts doesn't change who he is and how he loves us. And I don't know what that means for everyone here today. But I think, in general, we live in a world that just says, get more stuff, climb the corporate ladder, be a better you, keep up with the Joneses. And those things in and of themselves are not bad things. They've been created for us to enjoy. But ask yourself, are they taking the place of your enjoyment of God himself? Your devotion to Christ himself? Your excitement to get in the word, to pray, to live a life that reflects who Jesus is? What is there in your world that's a distraction from that? We're going to take communion. We take communion every week. The whole service is designed to lead towards the communion table. It's in the middle of the room. It's this place where Jesus should be in our lives, in the midst of work and play and home improvement and 
all of the thousand things that get in the way, Jesus should be the center. And we live in a world that is beautiful and ordered and full of nice things and large amounts of free time. And all of those things should make us draw closer to Jesus. But they often distract us from him. Communion is a way to reset that. We take it every week. We are Jesus' people. We are made alive by his blood. And everything else in our lives is just received as a gift. So as we sing, as we take communion, I would just encourage you to think about those things. Think about your time. Think about the things that you have, the resources that you've been given. Are they things that you're celebrating as a gift of your creator? Are they things that are distracting you from who God really is? And if you find that the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, this thing, if he brings something to mind and says, this thing, pray for the boldness and the courage to do something about it. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And we go like, well, he didn't really mean that because we don't want people plugging out their eyes. But what he did mean was take sin seriously. And if there's something going on in your heart that's pulling away from Christ, take the steps today to go, I'm, I'm going to get rid of it. I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm going to adjust it. I'm going to talk to somebody that will help me figure this out. Listen to the voice of God this morning. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.